Welcome to episode 19 of Turning the Goldfields Green. Today I have an interview with environmental activist of 30 plus years and all around great guy, Cam Walker. Cam has worked at Friends of the Earth for 30 years and has been an activist for even longer than that. If you want someone who really understands the push and pull, the nuance and dynamics of running a long-term campaign for the environment, Cam is your guy. Today I talk to him about Friends of the Earth and his life what he sees as important in regional communities like Central Victoria and what is the most important thing you personally as an individual out there listening to this can do today to help keep our government on track in this time of COVID-19 management and recovery. Friends of the Earth Melbourne is located on the land of the Wurundjeri people and Cam and I both live on Jara country, home of the Jarjawarung. We pay respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge the pivotal role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continue to play within the Australian community, especially as we attempt to move forward into a more earth-friendly future. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. So I'll just get you to describe to us who Friends of the Earth are and what your position there is. So Friends of the Earth has been going for more than 45 years. Um, it started in the United States, uh, particularly to work on anti-nuclear and environmental justice issues. And then it grew globally through the 1970s and 80s. It's now active in more than 70 countries. Um, it's represented right around the world, including in the global south. It has about 5,000 local branches, including the groups that are active here in Australia. That's amazing because I grew up in Melbourne and I knew of Friends of the Earth and I just assumed it was a local group that had started here and was not a global phenomenon. I knew Greenpeace was worldwide and a few other organisations like that, but I didn't realise Friends of the Earth was similar. Yes, it is. We're often referred to as one of the big three, which is Worldwide Fund International, Greenpeace International and Friends of the Earth International. And what makes us different from the others, we each have our role, of course, and our focus is very much on environmental justice. So how do we get environmental decisions that are good for people, uh, particularly affected communities? And the other thing is we have a federation structure. So the local groups run themselves rather than out of a, a head office in Western Europe. And what that does is it leads to very different approaches, you know, in Nigeria or Croatia or Australia uh, because the local circumstances are different. And that's resulted us in growing very strongly in the global south. So we're very strong on the ground down through the Asian archipelago, right through South and Central America and also in Africa. So you yourself, you've worked for Friends of the Earth for near 30 years, is that right? Yes, that's true. It's a bit scary how fast it goes, but yes, it is that long. (laughs) And you actually have worked overseas for a bit of that time. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences overseas? And, And it leads into another question I've got for you, which is how is Australia unique and what climate challenges do we have that's specific to our region? But start first with your overseas experiences, perhaps. So for probably about eight years, I was on the executive committee for Friends of Earth International, and I travelled a lot in Africa 
and South and Central America in particular, and a little bit in Eastern Europe. One of my roles was to support groups that were facing political repression. So unfortunately, a number of our, of our activists have been imprisoned uh, for their activism and also murdered. And sometimes we need to move quite quickly to protect people from threats, either from developers or from repressive governments. Um, so that allowed me to see, you know, I guess the, the frightening side of activism in the global south and it makes you realise how relatively safe and comfortable we are here in Australia. Certainly if we're uh, not Indigenous people, you know, we have incredible privileges to be active uh, and, and still be safe. Um, I think one of the highlights was being in Nigeria at the time when Friends of the Earth was working to bring Shell to court in The Hague in uh, the Netherlands because of pollution uh, on the Niger Delta from their oil drilling operations and the impacts on local villages down there. And that was, I think, for me, really eye-opening to see the absolute remarkable level of poverty and yet the remarkable level of resilience that these communities had and yet they had this multinational coming in over the top of them and literally destroying their rivers their waterways and their croplands and uh yes that was that had a, a huge impact on me to realize that often uh the impacts of environmentalism as we might see it here the loss of forest or you know uh, the loss of a a, a a beach or you know impacts on on species is often very pointed over there where it actually impacts directly and causes horrible things to happen in people's lives. Well, I imagine if they're quite poor and they're living off the land, those sort of like oil leaks through their creek systems or their rivers or across their land would be devastating. They would potentially starve to death if, if those resources were so badly affected. Absolutely, yes. And that was the reason we took the company to court. We actually won uh, in court in Nigeria and the company decided it wasn't going to listen to the court system in Nigeria. So then we took it uh, to the Netherlands and the Netherlands have a, a particular form of domestic legislation that allows operators based in that country to be taken to court for things that happen outside the country. And I remember, I think, one of the most remarkable things on the, the journey we, we took down to the Delta, and that, this was in the early days of collecting testimony before the court case was actually launched was being in a small village and walking between houses and there was literally a pipeline that had been laid down between two people's houses without permission that they'd had to put wooden planks over so they could walk over the top of it and then just beyond that there were uh, leaks into fields that was basically their food and these were people that you know didn't have bank accounts they had no nothing to fall back on beyond the support of their neighbours and their community and that was you know absolutely devastating to witness. That sounds awful and I think it it really brings home as you said earlier how lucky we are here and I think a lot of people feel hesitant to get involved in activist work in Australia because they feel like they might get in trouble or it might impact them. But we are very lucky to live in a country where we're relatively protected. We're not very likely to be murdered, for example, as you said earlier, or, and, and, you know, if someone tried to lay a pipeline down the side of my house, I would have a very strong case for telling them to go away. 
where it, which is just not true elsewhere in the world. They don't have those rights. Absolutely. And it really underscores the need that, as I said, for people to get organised, to join groups, even if you can't be active in a group, join it, support it if you can financially. Because unfortunately, right around the world, corporations love to say they're, you know, clean and green and responsible. But the reality in real time, in real people's lives is often very, very different. And where you have governments that will not intervene to protect people and environments, then it really only comes down to civil society groups like environmentalists, trade unionists and Indigenous organisations. So, yeah, unfortunately, you know, we, we have many protections here and we only have them because the community has demanded them. They're not just given by governments because they wake up one day and decide to give us rights. They're given because they're demanded. So, you know, the message for me is always... Everything is about politics. You know, no one can step outside politics. We all need to put our shoulder to the wheel however we can and play our part. Yeah, I think that's something that is worrying as, for example, America and even Australia and various other countries around the world sort of drift towards the right and towards leaders who don't want the people to have the rights that we've spent, you know, a century or more building up for our populations and we're just drifting there because we're actually quite comfortable right now we're used to being able to have those rights available to us and we consider them rights as opposed to privileges that we've earned or that our grandfathers and grandmothers earned via their protests what's your reflection on how that's happening across the world really it's absolutely right even if you go back one generation and if you go back two generations and you look at the conditions that people lived in including here in australia you know if you go to melbourne now and you walk down the merry creek that is a beautiful restored forest whereas it used to be a dumping ground for industrial waste so the world has changed as a result of communities getting organized and putting in place protections which involve good policy and and enforcement and fair and just systems and we only have them because we demanded them and and here in Australia we're witnessing already with the, as we come out of the lockdown over the covid-19 pandemic the federal government is talking about removing what they call green tape and red tape i.e environmental protection and workplace protection so you know we've spent decades building up this system that provides some level of protection to people in communities that they you know will have access to clean drinking water that they will have access to safe air and now we're we're witnessing this pushback against these uh constraints as they're seeing we i would see them as protections but um the federal government sees them as constraints and in the United States, if you look at what's being done through the Trump administration, you know, they are just gutting the Clean Air Act. They're gutting environmental regulations, you know, laws that took years and years to be put in place. And they're just basically gutting them because they're saying we want to get business back on its feet. And it's a very short term thinking because really, you know, we know that ultimately this earth is all we've got. And if we destroy the ecosystems, then we ultimately destroy both our economy and our society. And so there's this very short term kind of deterministic thinking that doesn't actually understand that we actually need some restraint in how we engage in the natural world. So it's very scary. It's happening now. Just this week, there's been the federal government, it's uh, C-19 commission that's meant to look at the economic recovery, which is stacked with people from the gas industry. Um, a leaked report has just come out that shows that basically it ignores renewable energy, it ignores storage, it ignores climate change, it ignores energy efficiency. And it says we should be putting millions of dollars of public funds into new gas infrastructure and we should have a conversation about nuclear power. So 
this is backwards thinking and this is a very live conversation now and unless we engage with it, then those things will come to pass. We will put millions and millions of dollars into new gas projects even though climate science says it's a very bad idea. I think I want to go back to this idea, like you've been in this role, well you've been with Friends of the Earth and you've been working on climate activism for 30 years. How have you seen things change over that amount of time. I personally feel like things have changed even in the last 10 years quite dramatically to a lot more spin. There's a lot more, like the reason Trump got in is largely because people have lost faith in the government and they've lost lost faith in political argy-bargy. They feel like it's all showmanship and there's no genuine argument going on. And same with the media, there's all of this argument and people just hear it as white noise and they want it to stop. And people don't know who to trust anymore. So do you feel like that's a fair reflection? Absolutely. I think it's utterly, utterly correct um, that the politics of politics has turned people off and it's created cynicism and it's created this right-wing populism. And, and you see it in Brazil with Bolsonaro, you see it in Eastern Europe, you certainly see it uh, with you know Pauline Hanson and, and those parties here in Australia, and you see it with Donald Trump. It's this kind of, I'm not a politician, I'm a real person and I will look after you. And the minute you drill into that, you realise that that's not at all what's going on, but it's something that people want to hear. I am really heartened, though, I believe that trust can be lost, but it can also be rebuilt. And I look at the polling around how um, people are looking for news and information at present during C-19, and faith in mainstream media has gone up considerably during this period where people have realised the limitations of getting your news off social media or off your mates or your family, and they should, that we should actually be looking to independent sources of, of, of news rather than just relying on what's on YouTube. Also really heartened by the fact that when you look at polling and there's regular polling every year in Australia on attitudes to institutions, so that includes state government, federal government, the police authorities, civil society, environmental groups, business, trade unions and so on, I am heartened by the fact that not-for-profit groups like ours, the, the environmental sector is generally trusted by the community. And so I kind of feel like, well, we can we can be an honest voice and call it as we see it rather than being a vested interest voice. And I also look at things of like here in Victoria, I think what the Victorian government is trying to do is rebuild a sense of trust in governance institutions because it has really been lost. So, you know, if you look at local councils that work well, and if you look at state governments that work well, what it does is engender a sense of faith in people that it's not going to be perfect, but at least the government is starting to think about me. And that's how you rebuild trust and you rebuild it, you know, step by step. It doesn't happen overnight. But if governments commit to do things and then they do it, that adds a little bit of level of rebuilt trust into the mix. And I think that's really what we need to do now. And I think it's an antidote to this kind of nasty, inward-looking right-wing populism that always has to blame you know, the migrants or the, you know, someone else they don't like for the world's problems. It's it's just a, it's a more holistic and a better way of thinking about the world and accepting that there is trust between people. And if you look at your neighbours, most people are okay and we'll always do the right thing where we can. But this right-wing populism drives us against each other, as does social media, where instantly it gets into who do I disagree with and who do I agree with rather than where is the common ground. I feel like the idea of seeing an enemy is amplified rather than seeing a human being who has opinions and was raised a certain way and, you know, has a backstory. Absolutely. 
Yes. And I, I've been struck by that. There's just a very contentious issue that I was watching on social media just in the last few days and seeing people disagree that I know each of them individually and they've attacked each other in a way that they wouldn't if they were in the same room together. And they would actually agree with each other probably on 95% of the issues that are being raised. But there is just this, the, the, the very nature of social media drives us into confrontational and antagonistic situations unless we're very mindful about it. And I think that a lot of us get stuck in that front of the brain reaction to, oh, that's wrong, I'm going to engage. And so what it does is fuel antagonism between people in a way that's really might feel good at the time or might feel cathartic, but it's actually not very helpful. Going back to this topic that is relevant for us right now in this COVID-19 economic stimulus kind of moment, um, what can people do to make sure the government doesn't go off backwards in time and start looking at old technologies? What can individual people do? Unfortunately, right now it is about politics. So it's about backing a group that is in the game and adding your voice to them by writing letters, by calling politicians, by, you know, getting in touch with radio stations. So have a look at the media, see who's active. You know, it might be Greenpeace, it might be Get Up, it might be Friends of the Earth, it might be the ACF. Everyone is in the game at present. And really we're incredibly, you know, out gunned by the resource sector and we've got a federal government that is so committed to being climate deniers and and fossil fuel promoters that we're in an incredibly live game at present and the future of Australia over the next 10 to 20 years is being determined now. Do we put hundreds of millions of dollars into really great public transport infrastructure and revegetation and sustainable agriculture or do we put it into gas pipelines and, and, and you know shoring up old clunker coal-fired power stations so if you've ever you know thought about getting engaged now is the time because we will be living with the ramifications of the decisions that are going to be taken in the next couple of months or decades to come so in the podcast i always put links for people if they want to follow up on any of the issues raised in in the show so i'll put a link to the friends of the earth website. Great. My next question is, there's lots of different ways people can get involved. I mean, we see petitions go around, letter writing, direct action is obviously, I've covered that a couple of times in previous episodes, and lobbying is something that happens at a political level or a big level. And what what is actually effective, do you think? What, what changes the course of things? I think the main thing, if you want to create change, is to think about two things. One is where do I have a point of leverage? Where do I have a little bit of power? You know, is it a network I have? Is it people I know? Is it skills I can share? And then what is the level of governance where I personally can have that impact? It might be by going and talking to your local councillors. It might be engaging in, you know, a federal, a global conversation around the UN and climate change. So once you start to think about, about those things, what's my skill and where can I have the most impact, then that kind of gives you a pathway to, you know, to, to do what you can to be effective. And I'm a huge fan of working at the state government level because state government is big enough in Australia that if you get a good decision, it actually changes the trajectory of society. So here in Victoria, for instance, we've got a ban on the process of fracking, so we can't destroy our, our groundwater by, you know, fracturing for, um, for, for gas. We have a renewable energy target that's driving, you know, the uptake of 
huge amounts of renewable energy and creating thousands of jobs. You know, and we've got a federal government that's useless, but, you know, we've got a state government that's moving forward slowly, and yet there's so much more they can do. So I put my effort primarily into the low, into the state government level, but it's up to everyone that wants to be involved to think, well, you know, where's my best place? And for some people, it's community level, some it's local government, some it's state government, you know, and then all the way up. So we know who our local federal member and our local state member are. Yep. Can you write to the Prime Minister directly? Can you write to his office or to him and just say, I think this is a terrible idea, please reconsider? And what's their process? Do they have to log and record all communications from members of the public? Yes, it does have uh, impact. Um, and often it's easy to feel a bit disempowered. But the fact of the matter is that numbers matter. And they do generally log the volume of correspondence they will get, and then that will be provided in a briefing to the minister or to the prime minister or or the cabinet member. So adding your voice does really impact. But then, of course, your postcode also matters. So a local federal member here in central Victoria is going to listen to a, you know, a 3450 postcode more than a 3000 postcode. So it's also around thinking, well, you know, where do I have impact? So you could write to the federal energy minister and he, you know, is in New South Wales, so he probably doesn't care what we might think in Castlemaine. However, the, they do still have to govern for all of us. So it's about not either or, it's about doing both. Contact the prime minister, contact the responsible minister. So if it's around energy, it'd be contact Angus Taylor. Also contact our local federal MP because they are much more likely to take what you're saying seriously. That's very interesting. I feel like the bushfires at the start of this year, it seemed like it was a terrible thing to happen, but actually it might galvanise a lot of people towards taking the environmental crisis seriously. People who may not have considered it in seriousness before might actually go, actually, we don't want this to be an annual event. We need to make sure that the climate doesn't you know, get hotter. Uh, But then the COVID-19 thing happened and I feel like that's shifted everyone's priorities again and people have gone insular and the bushfires have sort of almost disappeared from people's memories in some ways and taken that emphasis on climate out of the conversation. I think that um, things often happen politically simultaneously but they also occur sequentially. So you're right, we had this big focus on bushfires and now we've got to focus on the COVID-19 and we're going to come out of that. And then we've got the, well, how do we, you know, have a, a stimulus package that works for people and planet. Then after that, and as that's ramping down, we'll be, we will be having the conversation about bushfires again. And that's because Victoria and federally there are inquiries into the, the bushfire season. So I think that's the point where we really relaunch the conversation around the link between climate change and worsened fire seasons. The science on that is impeccable. We know that climate change is getting worse. We know that mega fires are getting worse um, here in Victoria. You know, it's climate change in a way that's very real. It's not an imaginary thing that might happen later. It is happening now. The climate is getting drier. It's getting hotter. And that's making worsened fire seasons. I mean, that's just, the you know, the fact of the matter. The CFA acknowledges that. The CRC Bushfire Research Centre acknowledges that. The only people that don't are the people who are climate deniers. So when we get to that point in the conversation, and we are having a conversation again about how do we respond to bushfires and how do we get ready for next summer, at that point, the Murdoch press and the rest of the climate deniers will kick into overdrive and they'll say, oh, it was about arsonists or it was about the greenies stopping fuel reduction burns or it was about this, that or the other. And they will do their best to take it off 
uh, you know, the narrative away from the the conversation around climate change and the link between that and, and bushfires. So we're going to have to pay attention and we're going to have to engage in the conversation because, you know, people love to keep it simple. The Murdoch press likes to keep it simple and they will present this as this is not about climate change. This is about fuel reduction burning. And I think sometimes a lot of people find that a lot easier to hear because it's a human scale problem instead of a global problem, which is just overwhelming to think about. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I guess I kept coming back to that. Well, it is a global problem. We need a global solution, but that will happen through people in their communities, their states and their nations getting involved. So we've always got to kind of push back against that sense of, you know, despair and, and, and lack of motivation to change anything. You know, if we all turn away, then nothing happens. Uh, but if we all pay attention and if we all, all engage, then it does actually have the chance of, you know, leading us to a point where we resolve this existential crisis that we're facing. And how do you see Australia resolving this divide between, for example, Queensland and Victoria and this political divide where it just seems so extreme and often people in Victoria or the South or other places are just like, how did the, how did they get into government again? And because the circles we're involved in, the people around us are, you know, not voting that way. Indeed, yes. So I think there's a couple of things at play here. One is to remember that basically people want to do the right thing. And so where we can, we take it out of a political frame. And we take it out of a cultural frame. And the example I always use is the campaign that we ran to get a ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling here in Victoria. We were successful in that. It took us about five or six years. And it was based on working with rural and regional communities to find common cause. And these are people who, particularly in Western Victoria and Gippsland, who we work with, they were primarily National Party voters. And, you know, they, they weren't our usual allies. And we had to spend time, we had to leave the baggage at the door, not talk about politics, not talk about climate change, build a sense of connection as human beings, build a sense of, of trust uh, in the relationship and then find common cause and then develop a plan of action from there. And, uh, you know, it shows to me that those sort of alliances are possible and effective and they can achieve meaningful and lasting change. So it's thinking around how do we build common cause rather than going back into our bubble or back into our political corner. But I think also we need to remember that the world is changing because of economics. Renewables and storage is getting cheaper day by day. And so for the first time ever, the fossil fuel industry and the nuclear industry are on the back foot. You know, they've always had the money. They've always had the the investment kind of juggernaut behind them. And that is now shifting to renewables. So the world is changing in spite of Scott Morrison and in spite of Donald Trump. And so we need to think of ways to help shift that to ensure that transition happens uh, through economic transformation and, and investment decisions. So think about, well, where is your super? You know, do you have any money in the bank? You know, where are, are those funds? That sort of thing. Are you helping the transition or are you backing the old form of energy? And then to kind of understand that this investment will eventually outflank the ideological opposition of people like Scott Morrison and all his mates in the federal government. So in the longer trajectory, we're actually already on the winning side. Renewables will win in this. It's just a matter of ensuring there are no or fewer bad investments put in place with public funds in the meantime before the technology tide fully shifts in favour of renewables, efficiency and storage. Mm. 
So how many Friends of the Earth organisations are there around Australia? We have about 25 members all up. Some of them are known by other names. So we have a campaign called Market Forces, which looks at investment and where people put money, banks, superannuation firms. There's a group called the Earth Worker Cooperative, which has established a worker-owned solar manufacturing facility in the Latrobe Valley. We have a group called Healthy Futures, which works to bring together doctors and health professionals to engage them and motivate them and mobilise them on climate change. We probably have about six local Friends of the Earth groups, but then we have also these other affiliate projects that are you know, occurring as part of our network. So each group is looking at their local scene and trying to work with what's going on there, but do you all collaborate and work on national issues as well? Yes, we do. So we have a national project called Tipping Point, which is working to build a really strong and thriving and dynamic uh, climate change movement around the country. Uh, Tipping Point works closely, for instance, with the student strikers and provides them with logistical support so that they can be more effective in their campaigning. Market Forces works at the national and global level around investment flows and decisions by the big banks and the super funds. Uh, we also work in, in direct climate change campaigning kind of at the national level. So at present, we're engaging in the COVID-19 Recovery Commission conversation. So yeah, a lot of our work is at that national level. And then we have a, a national anti-nuclear campaign a national emerging technology campaign that says, well, these new te- technologies like nanotech or like geoengineering, who's generating them, but more importantly, who is governing them and making sure they're safe before they're released into the consumer or the natural environment. Oh, this It's sort of overwhelming when you think of all the different things that are happening simultaneously. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes, it is. So you live in Castlemaine. Yes. What brought you out here? We've lived here for about 11 years and basically we had been living in Melbourne and we decided we needed a change and this was a place where we really had a a ready-made community. We had lots of friends up here and we thought that it was a great town and we wanted to be in a place that allowed us to be relatively close to Melbourne but have a, you know, a life in a really fantastic and, and thriving community. And uh, it's it's worked out really well because Castlemaine really is a wonderful place to live. <laughs> I'd second that. So does Friends of the Earth get involved in communities like Castlemaine We work with local communities wherever they want our help. You know, we're working with people in Far East Hitsland against the Mineral Sands Mine at present. We're working with people in Western Vic around onshore and offshore gas drilling, so people on the surf coast. Back somewhere in the midst of time, there was actually a Friends of the Earth group up here in Castlemaine. So we're always open to working with local communities that need our support wherever we can because, you know, there are only so many days in the week. Plus, we're also really open to starting new groups. So we, for instance, have someone who's living down in Warrnambool who has been working with Friends of the Earth down there and building a profile for us. So we're always up for direct collaboration or building our network, whichever, you know, is most appropriate in the local place. I see Castlemaine as having quite a strong environmental movement. What do you see this region, not just Castlemaine, but the, the Shire and the various surrounding towns, what do you see them doing right And what do you see that maybe there could be improvement or what's the future direction, do you think? I think that people love to hate on local councils. And I often think it's quite unfair because, you know, councils are working hard to deliver a whole bunch of invisible services or they're invisible until you need them, you know, maternal health care or, you know, waste management or recycling. And and it's a kind of an Australian, you know, pastime to complain about councils. And I think they actually get it, you know, a, a rough go. 
we've moved well beyond, you know, the three R's as a focus for councils. All councils are dealing with broader social issues now around inclusion, around sustainability, around climate change. And I'm really heartened to see the initiatives that have happened over time, uh, recognition of First Nations and that sort of thing. I reckon our council has done some really good work around climate. To be honest, I don't track issues really, really closely, but I think that, you know, they walk in a good balance between meeting the needs of the daily needs of residents, you know, footpaths and all the rest of it, and the need to be a little bit more visionary and engage, you know, on those issues to steer us towards sustainability. I think the thing I would love to see around here is a community-owned renewable energy park of some form. Dalesford, south of there, is the Hepburn Wind Farm. There was an attempt to build a similar project to the west of uh, Castlemaine that went for a couple of years and then kind of, you know, came to a halt. I'd love to see the council be more actively involved in the creation of medium to, to large-scale renewable energy that could bring down costs over time for council. It could bring income for council and it'd be, you know, a fantastic thing for our community to have a community-owned renewable wind park or a community-owned solar park. In, in our region, I reckon that would be a fantastic thing for them to concentrate on. It would be great, wouldn't it? It would. It would be wonderful. Yes, I, I think it would be great. And when you look at renewable energy, you know, a lot of the, the large global operators are often shifting from fossil fuels and diversifying into renewable energy. They're still globally based transnational corporations. The best form of energy is going to be renewable, but the best form of renewable energy is community owned. So yeah, it would be great to see, you know, this tradition keep going. It's fantastic that Victoria has Australia's first community owned wind project down at Leonard's Hill, south of Dalesford. It'd be fantastic to see more community owned, kind of mid and large scale energy projects popping up. Mm, yeah. Well, there have been both wind farms and solar farms proposed for this shire by MASG over the last decade or so. And a lot of time and effort has gone into trying to make them work. But I think they may have been just a little bit ahead of their time and they didn't get up for various reasons. Um, and currently MASG is working on a biodigester. I guess it wasn't that long ago that people were really worried about, especially wind farms and linking them to all sorts of negative things that have since been disproven. The biodigester is an interesting project. It's still in planning stages, but it, it is in collaboration with a local business and it isn't a community-owned enterprise like Hepburn Wind and, and what you're talking about. And, of course, the fact that Mask is working on this with, with one of our local businesses doesn't preclude community-owned renewable energy project getting up and, and going, which would be really great all round. Yes. Actually, next week's episode is going to be with... Taryn from Hepburn Wind and Jody Newcomb and we're going to be talking about how our Shire can get to zero net emissions by 2030 and of course a, a community owned renewable energy project would go a long way towards helping with that. Anyway, uh, change of topic, can you tell me a little bit about what led you to your environmental activism and how that has led to your time at Friends of the Earth? I guess the genesis of my activism was simply from really getting into bushwalking and ski touring and going to a lot of places in the east of Melbourne and seeing them logged and, you know, pondering that and wondering why we were destroying these forests. And that then led to environmental activism and then that led to university activism and then that led to social justice activism and that then led to working with Indigenous people. And then um, they all kind of 
converged and I really like Friends of the Earth because it does have a social justice perspective to its environmentalism. So by the time I uh, taught for a few years as a school teacher and then went on a really big adventure to Alaska and came back and didn't have any work and I ended up at Friends of the Earth, I kind of felt like I'd found my spiritual and my political home. And then the rest is history, as they say. What other jobs or what other causes were you involved with on that track? It sounds like you were involved in all sorts of things leading to that. Yeah, a turning, well, you know, the turning point for me was I was 18 and I went to the Franklin Blockade in Tasmania and that was thousands of people engaged in activism. So that was a little mind-blowing moment for me. I also was arrested and went to jail for 10 days and not having ever, you know, had any interactions at all with the police or the legal system that was quite an eye-opener and then I started to work quite early on so you know in my early 20s with uh, a number of Aboriginal struggles that were in play at that time and of course that gives you yet another perspective on the world so having come from the eastern suburbs of Melbourne you know into um, intense kind of Indigenous politics was all just part of that learning curve Um, and there was also a lot at that point in the activist scene there was a lot of focus on struggles in South America and I ended up travelling in South America and uh, kind of experiencing some of the the campaigns that were happening over there and the you know the depth of the struggle so we're just bit by bit getting experience and seeing realities beyond you know the realities of living in Ringwood in the outer eastern burbs and kind of accepting that well you know if we're going to change things then it's a lifelong struggle it's not something you do for a few years and you know then get a a real job Uh, you know it's something you commit yourself to. Mm -hmm. So you have been with Friends of the Earth for 30 years and that's a long time with any (laughs) organisation. It is indeed. Yeah, it is. It's a bit scary. Yes, uh, it has been 30 years. During that time, I, I taught for a few years part time at RMIT in uh, global studies and, and uh, theories of change. That was really good to be, you know, to be slightly outside the bubble. But um, yes, I'm still at FOE and still pretty happy at FOE and still pretty enthused and inspired by the work that we get to do. So I feel very, very lucky to have found my place. That's amazing. And I imagine, like, I know a lot of sort of volunteer, largely volunteer-run not-for-profit organisations. Um, there's often a high burnout rate and there's lots of changeover of people over time. What do you think's kept you there for 30 years? I really like the politics. I don't feel compromised by being there. And by that, I mean, I really want to work in a place that represents my worldview. So we're effectively a workers' cooperative. There is no executive director. There is no boss. We have wage equity, so everyone is paid the same amount. And I really like those core values. And the fact that we are part of a network that's active in 70 countries really gives me an insight into global activism and activism outside the wealthy part of the world. So, you know, those things put together. Um, and our grassroots politics and a real culture of looking out for each other and strong collective decision making and using consensus and all that sort of thing. It just really aligns with, you know, the sort of world that I want to live in. That was Cam Walker, campaign manager at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. 
Again, check out the episode description for this episode on saltgrass.podbean.com for links and help if you want to write to your local MP or relevant federal representative. It is actually really a crucial time to make sure the government doesn't use the COVID crisis as an excuse to remove environmental protections and ramp up some truly awful activities like fracking. You can also tell them how wonderful it would be to stimulate the economy via revegetation works or renewable energy infrastructure, etc., etc., etc. Any of those options would do the same job at getting the money wheels turning as a boost to coal, gas or logging. So get in touch with your local council. It's, it's really on the move right now. So that's the end of my interview with Cam. I hope you enjoyed it. And I have one more little extra thing for you this week. I have a book review for you. It is actually an audio book. It was obviously printed as a book book first, but uh, I just wanted to mention that if you don't know about it, you really should know about BorrowBox. It's an app you can get on your phone and I'm assuming on your computer as well, which allows you to borrow books from your local library. So your local library has to have the books on hand and you use your actual library card number to log in to BorrowBox so that it knows who you are and which library you belong to. But then you can borrow audio or ebooks. So if you like reading on your device, you can borrow an ebook and you get it for a couple of weeks as your borrow time as per a usual library loan. And then it sort of disappears and you'd have to reborrow it. And you can renew them quite easily, but only for a limited number of renews as per your usual library scenario. So it's a great way to access books without buying them. And you can always recommend to your library that you would really love to read a particular book. And I'm sure they'd get it in and then it will be available to you on BorrowBox. And it's all free and I quite love it. I was told about it by my local librarians and I have really enjoyed it because I do like when I'm driving, living in the country, I often do, you know, a quarter hour, a half hour, a one hour or more drive. And it's a great way to pass the time while I'm driving. I don't tend to listen to podcasts or ebooks outside of the car but it's an it's a nice way to to listen to some interesting information while you're driving and so the book review aside from BorrowBox I want to recommend a book and the book I've been listening to recently is by Tim Flannery an Australian academic and author and it's the book called The Weathermakers and he has been writing about climate change and all of the associated factors for some time and is quite well known for it and he himself is reading the book out loud. He is the voice of the audiobook, which I really enjoy because he's got a nice way of speaking. He's, he's quite Australian sounding, which I enjoy too. And The Weathermakers is really interesting if you want to understand the actual science of climate change and what it all means. So he begins with talking about the different climate eras that our planet has gone through and why. And he talks about what carbon means in our atmosphere, why we're always talking about carbon and greenhouse gases and what's the difference between a greenhouse gas and carbon. And he gives all of that information in a really easy to understand. There's there's moments in time where he throws out a lot of numbers like parts per million this and bits per blah, blah, that. And I sort of glaze over a little bit there. I will admit I'm not a numbers person, but he's also a really good storyteller and he so he tells the story of our planet's history and the ups and downs of the carbon and 
the climatic ups and downs of ice ages and warm periods and the time spans are incredible. And he also then relates it, of course, back to now and what we're seeing now. And he describes how the evidence is gathered and how people know what happened however many millions of years ago on this planet. And it's I find it really interesting. The science around climate change, you know, we always hear that it's pretty rock solid, that not many people in the science community deny climate change. But it's actually nice to get a grasp on what it really means, what the scientists have been looking at, what means for us to be living in a period of rapid global warming and what that means in in the scale of the planet's history. So when you're talking about millions of years, what does it mean that our planet is warming by degrees within a century? It's really fast in terms of the planetary timescale. And it's very interesting just listening to him explain all that in a way that is very comprehensible to the layperson, which is what I am. So that book is The Weathermakers by Tim Flannery, and you can get it as an actual book or you can get it as an audiobook, whichever way suits you best. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com.